Well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you're new, my name's Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. And I just hope you feel uh, warmly welcome today. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to begin our Christmas series. Uh, and, uh, you know, Christmas is a time when families get together. And if your family is like most family, there's probably a few people in your family that are a little... Uh, you know, a little different. Uh, you know, there's the maybe the uncle or the cousin that you whisper about kind of quietly when they're not around, or, or maybe there's some family members that you just try to avoid. Turns out that in Jesus' extended family, he had some of those kind of people too. And so we're going to talk about those people. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was only too glad to point out that Jesus had these kinds of people in his family. Uh, so join us next week. We're going to begin looking at some of the stories of those people in Jesus' family. And it'll turn out that, that your relatives look like saints compared to these people. So that, that's next week. This week, we're going to end uh, our series in the Gospel of John, the first four chapters, by talking about a, uh, uh, a story that's all about feeling used, about being used. Uh, by others. And I don't know if you've ever felt used by others, but it happens sometimes, doesn't it? Right? I mean, sometimes there's people in your, uh, in your life that become your friends or they become your uh, acquaintances, but it turns out that they're really just doing that because they want something from you. Uh, back in my 20s, I had a, a good friend. Uh, we hung out a bunch uh, and it was great. I enjoyed it, except for it turned out that they were hanging out with me because they, they thought that my brother was cute and handsome and they wanted to go out with him, which is true. He was cute and handsome, but it just didn't do a lot for uh, furthering our relationship, right? Uh, and maybe you've experienced something like that or other things. Sometimes, sometimes people want to hang out with you because of your job. You know, you meet them somewhere and they're kind of interested, but not really until they find out that you're like a, a mechanic or, a, or an accountant or you know how to fix computers and suddenly they're like, oh, oh. Well, tell me more. I mean, it's never bad to know a mechanic or an accountant or someone who can fix your computers. Other times, people, people want to connect with people uh, because of their money. Not really a problem that I've had, but it could happen, right? Or, or uh, because of the connections that you have. Um, and for some people, all of their relationships are simply fully transactional. In other words, they have a relationship with you simply because they expect that everything that they do for you, you will do something for them in return. In fact, maybe more than they've done for you. And this is the problem that Jesus faces. He isn't the guy with the, with the right skill set or with the money or with the right connections. He's the guy who can fix things miraculously, if necessary. And it's always good to know somebody who can fix things miraculously, if necessary. So here's what's going on. Jesus is on his way back from uh, the Passover in Jerusalem and he, he leaves there. He passes through Samaria and now he's on his way back to Galilee from where he is from. But turns out he's not very excited about it. In fact, the Apostle John, who's uh, relaying to us what happened, begins by saying this. In John chapter 4, begin, beginning in verse 43, he says this. After the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So Jesus is heading back to Galilee, but he tells his disciples, he's like, uh, there's no honor for a prophet in his hometown. When I, he says, when I get back there, they'll be like, oh, Jesus, he thinks he's something. But we know him. He's Mary's son. He's the carpenter. He's from Galilee of Nazareth. 
I mean, he really thinks he's something. And so, so Jesus isn't looking forward to, to going back. But when he gets there, listen to what happens. Verse, the next verse, he says this. So, he, um, uh, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, isn't that interesting? They welcome Jesus. But when he says that they welcome Jesus, don't confuse what he's saying there. He isn't saying, he isn't saying, oh, with arms wide open, they just embrace Jesus fully. No, no, the word that he uses there is the word that we would also, could also translate like he would, they were open to Jesus. They, they were open to the idea of Jesus. They, they welcomed him to kind of come and hang out. Now, now why? Because they had been in Jerusalem too and they'd seen Jesus in action there. They'd seen two things that Jesus did there. One, they saw him make a whip and go into the temple and turn over the money changing tables and drive out those who were selling things and they liked that. Because you see, they were from Galilee and the, and the religious people in, in Jerusalem had sort of a hoity-toity you know, attitude like they were the center of the world. And, um, and they were very happy to see one of their own go in there and raise a little cane and remind them that they weren't all that. They liked that. But then the second thing that they liked is that Jesus did a bunch of miracles there. And they saw it. And they liked that too. So when Jesus came back to Galilee, they welcomed him, meaning they were open to what he might do for them. You see, that... That that's the attitude that the people in Galilee had. And now John is going to tell us about an event that surfaced that attitude, that, that brought it to light. And Jesus, as he always is willing to do, calls it out. He speaks truth. And at the same time, he shows this incredible love because this is Jesus. Truth and love, always in perfect combination. So here's what happens. Verse 46. So he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Oh. Here's this event that happens. This Official, the, the word that John uses there gives the idea that he's probably a royal official and the, uh, in, the, in the king's court. And the king in that region was a man named Herod, who was also not very popular with the people that he ruled. The Galileans didn't like King Herod. But this official in his court had this son whom he loved deeply. And when he heard that Jesus was in Canaan, which was a number of hours walk away from Capernaum, he walked as quickly as he could to where Jesus was. And there he began to beg Jesus to heal his son. In fact, you can imagine the crowd gathering around as he is begging, uh, begging Jesus to heal him. And they're leaning in because now they're going to see Jesus do what Jesus does. I mean, they're going to either see Jesus agree to heal this man's kid, which would be really cool. Or they're going to watch this, Jesus tell this official to go pound sand because he's from the, 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 Rome, or the Herod's uh, court, which would be cool too. I mean, either he's going to heal or he's going to stick it to him like he did in Jerusalem. And that's the kind of guy you want to hang out with. I mean, that, that's, that's great stuff. 
And so this man comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus and Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. No, seems really harsh. I mean, the, the guy is begging Jesus to heal his son. But, but what we miss here, in fact, there's a footnote in your Bible that points it out, is that when Jesus says, unless you, he doesn't use the, the singular version of the word you, but rather the plural version. In other words, he's not speaking directly and only to this man. He's speaking to all of the Galileans around him. And he's saying this, unless you see some kind of sign and wonder, you won't believe. And he says, you aren't genuinely interested in who I am, in what I am all about. You're just using me for your own purposes. You see, Jesus had come from Jerusalem where he'd faced opposition from the religious elite. There'd been all kinds of skeptics in Jerusalem. That was just par for the course. But one of them, a man named Nicodemus, comes to him one night and he engages Jesus in this deep, significant conversation saying, Jesus, who are you? And how do we know how we can be right with God? And it's this rich, deep conversation. And Jesus doesn't do any miracles. But they engage around who Jesus really is. And then he leaves from there and he travels through the region of Samaria, which was considered the land of the pagans. I mean, those who are hopelessly far from God. And while he's sitting at a little well outside of a little town, he runs into a woman Married five times, her world is a wreck. And they get into this deep, significant conversation about what is true worship and, and who is the Messiah. And when she understands who Jesus is, she rushes back into the city and invites her friends. And many of them believed. No miracles. Just this is who Jesus is. This is what he is about. And they said yes. And he changed their life. But now... Now when he gets back among his own people, the people of Galilee, this would be like the, the conservative religious crowd. When he gets back among them, it turns out they're not so interested in who he is as much as they're interested in what he can do for them. Entertain them by, you know, performing some miracles that they could all talk about, like look at what he could do. Maybe heal their own kid if their kid gets sick. And if not, at least be a stick to beat those that they don't like with. Raise a little cane. And Jesus calls them out on it. He just says, this is the way it is. You want me in your world because you think that I can do stuff to help you. Now remember, he's not talking to the skeptics. He's not talking to the, to the pagans. You know, they, they may or may not accept him, but they, they were looking to actually know who he is. No, no. Jesus addresses this to his people, to the religious crowd, to people like you and me. Which should cause us to stop and think for a few moments. I mean, it's been said that, that the evangelical Christianity, the evangelical church of which we would be sort of under that umbrella, the evangelical Christianity is obsessed with pragmatism. Obsessed with doing what works. 
figuring out and moving it forward and making things happen and, and growing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's, a, that's kind of a, you know, a North American thing in some ways. Except for when it comes to God. I mean, if we take that kind of an attitude and begin to apply it to our relationship with God, then instead of wanting to know Jesus and what he's really like and what he's really all about, we kind of say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what can you do for me? How can you be of help for me? You see, we end up wanting a user-friendly Jesus, a seeker-friendly Jesus. We want to know what he can do for us to fix our problems or, or to raise Cain against those who happen to have a different view on this world and this life than we do. We want a Jesus that we can use rather than one that we simply have to obey. Now, hopefully that isn't us. I mean, hopefully that isn't you. Hopefully that isn't me. But when we come to a story like this, it's good for us just to step back for a minute and examine our own hearts and say, okay, God, am I like the Galileans? Is this what I am doing? So let's just do that for a few moments, okay? Let, let's, just, let's just examine our, our, our lives. Let, let me start by giving some context. Cultural commentators who are looking at what's happening in, in, in Western culture have noticed that in the last number of decades, there's been a profound change in the way that our culture thinks and sees the world and that's not really news to us, but as far back as 1976 already, one of the cultural observers, a guy named Tom Wolfe, wrote an article called The Me Decade. And he pointed out that Western culture in their thinking was not moving forward, but was actually reaching way, way back. And, and he pointed out that the growing profound sense of individualism, which has only just mushroomed since that, that time, actually has its foundations on the philosophical foundations of an ancient Christian heresy called Gnosticism. And, and, and he began, he explains what this is. Gnosticism uh, was a heresy that grew out of Christianity about 200 years after the Christian faith was established. And it held a number of key ideas that took Christian values and began to shift them. So the, the foundation of, of a Gnostic view is that the world was is inferior because it was created by an inferior God. Christian view, of course, is the world was good, created by a good God, but that it has been ravaged by sin. The Gnostic view then says that we can progress past this inferior you know, world to a better place. We can make the world a better place, which, of course, we believe God is doing in the Christian worldview, be through Jesus Christ. But then Gnosticism says the way to do that is to find the divine spark within ourselves, which is very different from the Christian view, which says that we find truth and light in Jesus. And then Gnosticism says that the divine spark in us means that the truth is found within the individual. And again, Christians say, no, no, truth is found in Jesus Christ. And then Gnosticism would say, therefore, we can make the world a better place through our understanding of the right knowledge. That, that's the word in Greek, gnosis, from which we get Gnosticism. It means knowledge. And the Christian view would be through following the, the, the leading of Jesus in our life. But, but this idea that the world is in trouble, 
That we just look within ourselves to, to find the truth and therefore we can make the world a better place. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Right? I mean, it's fascinating to think that, that what our culture holds today is not some sort of cold, clinical, logical reasoning. But if they knew the foundations where it came from, their belief system is just as old as a Christian belief system and is just as much a belief system as the Christian belief system. It's just different. Now, the practical outworking of a Gnostic worldview of a Gnostic philosophical mindset is that the ultimate authority in culture is the individual. I mean, the ultimate authority is what we see ourselves, what we think, and how we feel. And that's why not just the church, but pretty much every institution in Western culture is, is being looked down upon by people these days because no institution has the right to say to them how to live their life. They alone become the authority in their life and how it is that they are supposed to live. I mean, even science, which is fascinating, even science in these days has begun to take a backseat to simply how people feel about themselves. What happens is the individual becomes the center of everything and everything therefore revolves around them and how they see the world around them. And this is where this comes back to us as followers of Jesus. This attitude is in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink. I mean, it's just, it's just everywhere, which means that if we're not careful, it can begin to seep into the way that we think about the world around us. And it happens. Uh, you know, in a study that was uh, done about the spirituality and beliefs of teenagers in America, these two researchers, uh, a guy named Christian Smith and a lady named Melinda Lindquist Denton, they interviewed thousands of teenagers in America. Both those who identified as followers of Jesus, as Christians, and those who didn't. And they took all the data and they worked it all out. When it was done, they found very little difference between these groups in terms of how they think. They said basically all of them had this sort of loose, non-binding belief in a distant God. In a God that was there but would not hold anyone personally accountable for their life. And and. Virtually all of them believe that, and this is their quote, that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. That's what they held, that the central goal of life was to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And that attitude is not limited to teenagers. It's easy to find in our own lives, especially if we've allowed that Gnostic mindset to begin to, to enter into our lives. If, if that's the case, then we become the arbitrator of what is true in our lives. And we see it among Christians. I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, uh, for a number of years uh, at, the, uh, at one of the other churches that I served at, uh, one of my roles was to meet with couples that were going to get married. Uh, and I would have these couples come into my office, wonderful couples. They love God. They were actively involved in the church and they would come in and sit down. We had a form for them to fill out. And so they'd fill out the form, name, address, phone number, etc. And then they'd give me the form back and I'd look and I'd be like, well, your address is the same as your address. Are, are, you, are you living together? And they look at me like, yeah. I'd be like, well, you, you know that that Jesus teaches that, 
that, that sex is to be something that is reserved for the covenant relationship of marriage between one man and one woman, right? And they give me a look like, well, yeah. And, they, and you know, they almost invariably say, yeah, I suppose, but, but it saves us money. That was their justification. It's fascinating to see. You see, they like Jesus for sure. They, they committed to following him, but not, not all. Uh, yes, they follow him, but not the, not the part about sex. That, that part Jesus was probably wrong about. So, so they got to decide which parts of Jesus they liked and which parts they didn't like. And unfortunately, that's all too common in the church. You know, if we're not careful... If Jesus isn't the center, if he isn't the king in our lives, then, then he's on the side. And we take on the attitude of those Galileans, like, well, what can he do for me when I need him to? You know, he, he's there to help when, when necessary. But otherwise, I get to decide what of him I want to receive and what I don't. And so, again, I hear things from Christians. They say things like, well, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus, but I don't believe Jesus got it right when it came to sexual preferences. Or, you know, I follow Jesus, but I don't think that he requires me to give of my financial resources, at least not anything significant. Or, you know, I don't believe that Jesus would want a woman to keep her unborn child if she doesn't want to. That's her right to decide. Or, I don't believe that Jesus would ever condemn people to an eternity in hell if they don't accept him. See, if we're not careful, we become like the Galileans that Jesus is talking to. We, we find the truth within ourselves and Jesus is just there to help us, to do miracles if we need him to do miracles, to, to, to you know, raise some cane with those that we don't like if we want him to do that. But, but otherwise... We get to decide. And sometimes, sometimes it isn't that we don't believe what Jesus says. We believe everything that he says. We do. But sometimes, instead, we quietly begin to assume that therefore, because we believe everything, because we do what he tells us to, that therefore, when we need him, he, he, he needs to come through. I mean, he should heal us or the loved ones in our lives when they're sick, right away, because he kind of owes us, because we've been good. Or he should rescue us when we get into trouble. I mean, you know, I know people who for years, you know, didn't follow Jesus' wisdom or his teachings and their actions led them to a place where they ended up in all kinds of trouble. And then they prayed a prayer, God, rescue me. And they expected that God would rescue them in a day and a half after having ignored what Jesus said for years and years. And when he didn't, they're like, well, see, this doesn't work. Or they think that because they're faithful to him, that he should help them grow in their career and, and be successful in their resources, in their finances, and all those kinds of things. Because. Because that's why they follow him. That, that's... That's why they're doing it, because we are pragmatic. Because we need him to help us when we need him to help us. And if it doesn't work that way, then why bother? See, the problem is, the danger is that sometimes we don't really want to know Jesus and what he's all about. We just want to know what he does for us. 
We sometimes describe ourselves as seekers looking for spiritual food, like, like a good shopper looking for the best bargain at Christmas time. However, the radical world, the word that the Bible uses to describe the followers of Jesus is not seekers, but slaves. Slaves. The call is enter, to enter into a relationship with Jesus that totally transforms how you see the world around you. No longer through your eyes, no longer what you think or what you feel or you at the center, but rather what Jesus thinks and what he says at the center. And that, that, that means that you make Jesus your, your master and your king. And that's radical. I mean, the, that idea that Jesus would be your master and your king and he would dictate to you how do you live your life is in utter opposition to a Gnostic worldview which says, nobody tells me what to do. I, I myself am the arbiter of all truth. See, this is the radical thing that comes from following Jesus. This is what he calls his followers to do. Jesus says this. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's an indictment upon the religious crowd. That's why it's so important that we have a, a real relationship with him, that we actually know what he is all about. I mean, we can't afford to have the attitude of the Galileans, that a relationship with Jesus is simply transactional, and then complain that Christianity doesn't work because Jesus didn't do what we wanted him to do, when we wanted him to do it, in the way that we wanted him to do it. It doesn't work that way. So Jesus speaks this indictment to the crowd. But what about the man? What about the man standing there begging Jesus to heal his son? I mean, what does he do now? Well, here's what John tells us he does. Verse 49, John says, The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He just asks Jesus again. And I don't blame him. I mean, if that was my boy and Jesus said, I would just ask him again, Jesus, please. Please, it's my boy. And here's how Jesus responds to him now. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Ha! Jesus would never punish this man simply for being a member of the royal court of King Herod. Not a chance. I mean, this has been the message that John has pounded at over and over and over again. In the opening chapters of his gospel, Jesus welcomes the religious elite like Nicodemus who are seeking. Jesus welcomes this five-time married, now living with a guy, woman who's a Samaritan whose world is kind of a wreck. He loves them. And now he loves this man too. Regardless of where he's from. I mean, this is what we just see over and over. And he's glad to heal his son. But he won't go with him. I mean, the royal official says, you can read through the text again. Come, please. Come down. Come to my home. Come to the bedroom. Come and, leave, you know, put your hands on the child. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to heal your son that way. Instead, he says, I'm going to just send you. Because he, he's not about to end up at a place 
where all the Galileans are gathered around outside and he heals them. They're like, ooh, ah, uh, look at our guy. He did it, right? He's, Jesus is not going to do that. Instead, he's going to heal this man's son in a way that requires faith from him. So he says to him, okay, I'm going to heal your son. You just go home. It's a couple hours of walk. And when you get there, your son will be well. You see, the official is called to believe in Jesus without having seen Jesus do anything. Right? I mean, think about that. For, for someone who is desperate like he is, he has to believe in Jesus even though he doesn't see any evidence that Jesus is actually going to do what he says. And so what does he do? John says this. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. That's cool. The man says, okay, Jesus. Okay. Not because I saw you do it, but simply because you said it, I believe you. I will trust you with the most important thing in my life, with the life of my son. I, I, I'm going to trust you. Jesus, I'm going to trust you with my kids. Jesus, I'm going to trust you with my marriage. Jesus, I'm going to trust you with my health or the health of someone that I love or, or with my career. Jesus, even though I haven't seen you do anything, I'm going to trust you. And I don't know how long this could be. Maybe it's hours until I get home and see if anything happens. Maybe it's days or weeks or months. Maybe it's decades. But Jesus, I'm going to trust you. Now see, that, that's the real deal. That, that's genuine faith. It's a totally different attitude from the Galileans who, who are open to Jesus because of what Jesus could do for them. It's a complete opposite of, of being the center of, of, uh, of your world and deciding what Jesus can tell you and what he should and shouldn't do. Rather, it's to surrender to him completely and say, Jesus, I'm just going to trust you. And here's what happens. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that, that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Turns out, Jesus was true to his word. Because Jesus is always true to his word. He always does what he says he will do. But he does it in his timing and in his way. And, and this man believed and he obeyed, and he waited, and then he saw Jesus work in his life and his family in brilliant and beautiful ways. And you know who didn't see Jesus work? The Galileans. I mean, those who were, who were just waiting for Jesus to, to come and to, to, to do what they wanted when they wanted him to do, they saw none of that. But this man, I mean, he believed with all his heart. He said, yes. This is who I follow. This is who my life is for. John ends the chapter this way. He says this. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. 
Remember that Jesus has already done a, a bunch of signs, a bunch of miracles, but John is choosing certain miracles, certain signs, because they're not just miracles, they point to something much greater than the miracle itself, right? So we talked about this. The first sign that he did was turning water into wine at the same place in, in Cana. It wasn't just a party trick because they'd run out of wine. It was, it was Jesus' way of communicating. God is doing something new and it's lavish. It's, it's better. It's like this amazing jars and jars of wine. And now John says, here's the second one you shouldn't miss. And that's this, that Jesus is in the process of healing and bringing new life to those who put genuine faith in him. Not based on what they see, but based on who Jesus is. So the question today, the question today for you is this. Do you have the right mindset as a follower of Jesus? Is there, is there places in your world where you are the arbiter of truth? where you're standing and saying, well, Jesus, this part, yes, that part, no. Is this place in your life where you're saying, I need you to help me now, but otherwise, you just wait. Or Jesus, I want you to get those guys. I'm going to use you to tell them that they're wrong. Do you need to repent and say, no, no. Jesus, everything through your eyes. You're the master and I am the slave. And then, second thing that you need to ask yourself is this. Is there a place where I just need to say, Jesus, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you with the most important thing in my life. Regardless of whether you do something today or tomorrow or 10 years from now, I'm just going to trust you because that's who you are. My relationship with you is not based on this transactional thing. It's based on an understanding of who you are. That's the challenge from this text. And it's an invitation to those of us who say, I want to follow you, Jesus, to do exactly what he calls us to do. I want to invite you, bow your heads. Let me pray. Well, God, uh, thank you again for, for this gospel that tells us about Jesus' life. God, we thank you that Jesus was no, no pushover, no softy. He, he just called the truth as it was. And yet in the midst of it, he was filled with deep love. And God, may we not be like those people, like the Galileans in that day who just we're religious, but only for their own benefit. God, forgive us where we've had that mindset. God, forgive us where we have done things with the expectation that therefore Jesus has to do it this way and in this time. God, forgive us. God, grant us the courage to have the kind of faith that says, whenever you choose Jesus, I trust you because of who you are. God, would you help us? Would you help those who are struggling around this, this very day, God? Would you remind them of how deeply you love them and that you will care for them, but that you are wise beyond our knowledge. Lord, that, that you are sovereign over all and so that we can trust you no matter what. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, thanks for coming and joining us today. I want to invite you to join us again next week. We're going to start our Christmas series. It'll just be a great opportunity to invite family and to friends and to walk through the Christmas season together as we look again into the life of Jesus. I want to end now with these words from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.